Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's the resident we head to and it's the resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. Are you saying to your MPs bluntly on all of this, back me or sack me? What I'm saying, not just to my MPs, but the entire country is that I share their frustration. My patience with this has worn thin. One of my five priorities at the beginning of the year was to stop the boats, and I'm pleased that we've made progress. Down by a third. For the first ever time, by the way, that shows that our plan is working, but we've got more to do. And that's why this legislation is so important. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald. We're recording on Thursday, the 7th of December in the evening. It's been another couple of days for me at the COVID inquiry. Hello, Kirsty Buchanan, who is also on the pod and is always the star of the show. Hi, Kirsty. Hello. Do you know what today is? It's a very important day. Ooh, um, day two of Boris Johnson giving ev- evidence to the COVID inquiry. Is that what you mean? Uh, no, I was thinking top of mind. It's okay. Christmas jumper day. Oh, so it is. Are you wearing one? Uh, no, I don't have a Christmas jumper. Oh, no. Um, I've never really felt the need to have a jumper that's got flashing lights on it. So uh, <laughs> You should get one of those 3D ones that's got Rudolph's nose sticking out the front of it. <laughs> if we did, if they had one with I Heart Chris Mason and the heart was all flashing, I would get that. But I, I Heart Christmas on. There's a pun in there somewhere, isn't there? I think somewhere. Uh, somewhere. Very good. Anyway, Thank happy Christmas much. jumper day. 
Well, and to you. I was wearing a jumper today that Matt Charlie of Times Radio thought made me look like a fisherman. But it was basically just a kind of white knitted jumper. Um, so I'd, I've, I thought it was a bit festive without being OTT. Well, look, I bow to no one in my love of Matt Chorley, but I certainly wouldn't be taking fashion tips of him. So <laughs> I think you're good. I love that. Uh, right, well, welcome to the podcast. Um, well, I mean, lots to discuss today. I feel like we always have to talk about the Conservatives fragmenting and splitting and chasing their own tails a bit. But today it's really reached new levels for Rishi Sunak. So we're going to spend most of the episode doing that. But we did just want to spend a couple of minutes reflecting first on Boris Johnson's couple of days at the COVID inquiry. So the former Prime Minister was giving evidence um, yesterday and today. Uh, that has now concluded. And um, well, I don't know. I think some initial reflections for me. So I was watching the whole thing to report on it for Times Radio. And I think some initial thoughts. One, he does not look very well. He looks a bit sort of faded and ghost-like. Um, I mean, that is just an observation. The second one is that yesterday he felt a bit more subdued than he did today. Today he was tipping a little bit more into Boris Johnson classics, uh, you know, making sort of quite smart comments, um, perhaps being a bit provocative with some of those who were asking questions, maybe just a bit more relaxed or at ease or something, but he certainly felt a bit more himself today. And then I suppose the third thing that's always in my head, Kirsty, when I'm kind of listening to these things, is what have we learned? Because that's the whole point of the inquiry. And I'm not, I'm not convinced we learned loads from Boris Johnson. I think what it did do is maybe colour in a bit more of the detail of the picture that we were building from other bits of evidence. But I'm not sure anything was particularly... I don't think there was a particular revelation. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I've been away... Uh, treating myself to a couple of days at a, Good. Uh, at a spa. Um, so I've caught it in kind of highlight version more than anything else. Mm. And I was interested to note your, I thought exactly the same thing. I think his demeanour yesterday was quite subdued. I was quite surprised by how uh, overawed by the occasion he appeared to be. But he really seemed to have found his stride today. He was much more uh, steely. Uh, in some of his responses. Um, uh, And I don't know about you, but I think the overarching uh, points that he was trying to make, particularly in relation to, you know, the toxicity of number 10 at the time, Mm. was, you know, this wasn't toxicity. This was, you know, robust challenge. And it was very important to have people um, in the room that were all kind of robustly challenging each other um, without really sort of any appreciation that not everybody likes a room of robust challenge. So they just find it uh, tends to silence them rather than encourage them. And it's a particular breed of man that likes that kind of atmosphere uh, to aid policy decision-making. And the other thing I thought that was interesting that he was trying to note was every time that he was challenged on on, uh, the assertions that he made about the elderly saying, you know, look, they've had a good innings, um, you know, let it rip. Patrick Valance's diaries that were kept contemporaneously saying that he was obsessed by the average age of COVID deaths being 82. Mm. Um, He was very robust in coming back on that and saying, no, that wasn't my view. That was me uh, engaging in a debate and throwing that view out there because it was a debate It was a sort of debate that was being held and had widely anyway. So it was me 
kind of structuring that conversation and, and throwing that into the mix rather than it being a genuine uh, representation of my view. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't – so it was a little frustrating from that point of view because he didn't seem to – get very far or own very much or reveal very much. But I think the one thing that did surprise me, and I don't know how you found it, was the couple of moments where raw emotion broke through. Uh, yeah. Once yesterday, when he was talking about the tragic, tragic year, uh, and once today when he was talking, uh, he says, for the first time in public about his own experiences. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, how did that strike you in the, yeah. in the wider context of the day? Yeah, I think those moments definitely stand out. I think particularly today's was the kind of moment of the day in many ways, because as you said, he, he hadn't kind of talked about being in intensive care before. I think yesterday's tragic, tragic year, I think I was, I think I still am on board with benefit of the doubt that, you know, Boris Johnson was critically ill with COVID. He was in intensive care for three days and he survived. And that's what he was speaking about today was that he was surrounded by people who kind of reminded him of him. Um, and so I, th I think it's, I think it's okay to realize that politicians can be human. However much we may very legitimately in Boris Johnson's case, criticize his behavior and his leadership style and how he conducted himself and, those around him during COVID. Um, but I don't know, I don't think it's ever fair to try to sort of prove that it was fake or, or anything like that that might be the kind of suggestion about Boris Johnson's emotion. One thing that did jar a little maybe today with, with, um, with his talking about being in intensive care was that it, it, was, an answer, it, it was in his answer to a question from Hugo Keith KC um, where he read a message sent by Boris Johnson um, on the 17th of December, 2020. Uh, we all should have told people uh, about leaking, but, but, but more than that, he kind of went on about their behavior and how it would look. But now we must smash on. And so the, the point that Hugo Keith was making was that that would give the impression that he didn't really care about the behavior of his staff obviously around sort of party gate related incidents. Um, and that's what he was pushing across, but that he was worried about how that would appear, what the perception of that would be. And so Boris Johnson gave that answer and he spoke about being in intensive care and seeing people around him who weren't elderly and all of this. And his sort of conclusion was to say that I didn't care about the suffering that was being inflicted on the country is simply not right. And Hugo Keith then came back with, nobody's suggesting you didn't care about the suffering. I've suggested you didn't care about any reaction to the behaviour. And Hugo Keith said that was demonstrated on the face of that WhatsApp. And so I think the tears are probably genuine. The emotion is probably genuine because it must have been awful to be in intensive care with COVID. It must have been. But it came in an answer that was about something else, actually. And so I think we just need to be aware of kind of the context in which Boris Johnson was speaking and addressing these issues. Um, and I, yeah, I just think that's important, basically. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I rightly observe as I listen to you say that, you know, it's a politician answering uh, a question, but not the question that he's been put to him. Yeah. Uh, so he's answering it how he wants to answer it rather than responding to the question directly. I mean, look, I thought those 
tears were genuine today. I don't, uh, and for once, actually, I found quite a lot of what he was saying. I think at least he believes it. Um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think if you are sat a stone's throw away from uh, the bereaved relatives of people who have, mm. you know, who have lost loved ones and they blame you specifically. Yeah. That the only point that your voice cracks and you feel pity to the point of being moved to tears is for your own experience yeah. and not the experience of hundreds of thousands of other people in this country who went through hell on earth. Mm. Uh, I think that probably would have gone down very badly mm-hmm. uh, with the people uh, who are looking at this from a very uh, unhappy and dark place. And, I, you know, we've said this every time we talked about COVID, you know, you and I can afford to be quite charitable about it because we were fortunate enough yeah. um, neither to be very ill ourselves or to, you know, to lose anyone. But I think you know, watching this from a different perspective must be uh, must today must have come across as really frustrating for them. Yeah. I think you know they I didn't get right. any answers. Uh, they didn't seem to get very f- further forward, and he didn't see the other thing that struck me about it. A couple of other things. One, he didn't seem hugely prepared. No. So I agree with you on this. Certainly on day one, he was all over the place. He couldn't remember dates. He couldn't put his finger on anything. Today, I would argue, he was a bit more on it. But in comparison to Chris Whitty and Matt Hancock, even, who I've watched in full, both of them, they were all over it, pinpointing dates and memories of this and recollections of that. And yet, I agree with you, Boris Johnson felt a little off the boil on that front. So I think I think that would have, uh, you know, if I was a relative, you know, a bereaved relative, I would have found that alone quite insulting. Yeah, fair um, and I think uh, that there wasn't there wasn't any self doubt still, you know, whether he was yesterday where he was, you know, a little bit cowed by the occasion, or today where he was more robust, you know. And he said, "Oh yeah, we should have twigged it earlier, etc." But mm-hmm. there wasn't any sense that, you know, he sat there and having long dark nights of the soul about himself. And his own role and his own responsibility in it. Um, and like- so, again, we've had another key player who, uh, whilst unlike others, you know, he wasn't, you know, quick to rush to blame others, but nor was he prone to introspection about himself in the way that if you contrast that with, say, Helen McNamara's evidence session, mm where there was a lot more, you got much more of a sense of introspection and much more of a sense that she had spent a lot of time examining her own uh, actions, inactions and thoughts at the time yeah. and was honest about when she had been found wanting and why. And yeah. I, I haven't had any sense of that today from him or from no. Hancock or from or from uh, Don Cummings. And again... You know that doesn't touch. You know that's something I can I can observe quite objectively. But again, if I was a bereaved relative, I, I would be finding all of this extremely uh, frustrating, is probably to put it mildly. Um, yeah. And the other the other thing I found slightly peculiar about it was he 
you know, so he didn't he he didn't sort of you know examine himself, but he clearly felt the need to come with something to say about you know to examine for the future in that kind of lessons learned thing. One and they were just slightly weirdly off topic. I thought both of them. One was about uh, maybe in the future having to change the Public Health Act mm-hmm. to allow the UK government to override the devolved administrations uh, in times of you know extreme public health emergencies. Because as far as I could work out, he kept on saying it was about the comms and that the you know the lines to take in Scotland or Wales were, were different. But it was also because the approaches were different. Yes, exactly. um, and uh, I thought that was an odd thing to pick on, um, you know. And that is the very nature of devolved administrations; they are, you know, allowed to go down different paths and say different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an interesting observation from a uh, from the head of a UK Westminster government who clearly still thinks that they've got the right answers. And we also got the um, revelation um, from him that he um, had no ill feeling towards Nicola Sturgeon, and so trying to, yes. sort of, you know, match up the idea that they, <laughs> they might actually have got on quite well, which I think they hid exceptionally well when they were both in office. If I'm honest, exceptionally well, yeah. Like I say, <laughs> some of the evidence was more convincing than other bits of the evidence. Um, and then the other weird, the other weird moment of the of the day was the was the payoff. Yes. Uh, yes. So as he was sort of um, giving the inquiry things to think about that it hadn't asked him to do, he sort of said, oh, you know, we must, you know, we must look at, you know, the genesis of this pandemic and where we think it, you know, really came from, as if to lean into the idea of, you know, was it really, uh, you know, the wet markets of China or was it, you know, did it escape from some Wuhan lab? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I just thought was a very weird thing to throw in at the end of a two-day session about government and how the government had handled it. It also led to the absolute zinger from Baroness Hallett, who's um, leading the inquiry, who said, well, Mr. Johnson, you're the one who gave me the terms of reference for this inquiry, but, you know, <laughs> so thanks very much for your helpful suggestion that you didn't ask me to think about when you were establishing this thing, um, which I thought was quite nice <laughs> from her. <laughs> the back of the net. She from d- to be Hallett. fair, she does a good line in putting people down and then smiling really sweetly at them at the <laughs> yeah, same time. It's quite, uh, That's true. <laughs> it's quite discombobulating. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there we are. So that's... Um, Boris Johnson at the COVID inquiry, done. Worth saying that it's Rishi Sunak's turn at the COVID inquiry on Monday. Um, He's got a full day's evidence. Eat out to help out's come up a lot. Rishi Sunak was, of course, the chancellor during COVID. Um, And so we'll see what what comes of his evidence on, uh, on Monday. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let me tell you about the resident hotel where I just stayed. That's right, I have been to the resident in Liverpool for a lovely, lovely stay. I have to be honest, it was wonderful. And I'm not just saying that, I promise you it was great. The warmest of welcome from the lovely reception team, including a lovely welcome card signed by Megan and the resident team. We were offered a map, we were offered guidance on where to go for food and for drinks. The location was great. We had several activities in Liverpool. We had a friend's birthday dinner. Then we were bowling, we were doing all of that stuff, and all of it was within a 10-minute walk of where the hotel was, which was perfect. Not only that, we had guidance on the best local restaurants and bars where we could also get discounts as a result of staying at the resident. The little kitchen in the hotel room was very, very helpful for coffee drinkers. Unbelievably, I'm not one. There's a little coffee machine right there as well. Do you know what was lovely as well? City centre location... Double-double glazing. There was the outdoor window, then an indoor window. No noise. I slept like an actual log. Beautiful room, very spacious, well-equipped, lovely hotel, lovely staff, lovely location. Take this as a personal endorsement. I've been there, done that, and you should do the same. Stay at the resident. Um, Speaking of... Rishi Sunak, he has not had a great 24 hours, has he, to say the least. Uh, So basically, he I'm going to take this from the Times because I think it neatly sums up a bit of the problem here. Rishi Sunak faces multiple Tory rebellions as MPs on both flanks of the party consider voting against his Rwanda plan in a crunch vote next week. Centrist MPs say they're very nervous about the bill. MPs on the right of the party are reserving their decision on whether to back the legislation until they get some legal experts to give them their verdict at the weekend. Today, the PM held a press conference to defend his plan, insisting that this emergency legislation will make incidents of court blocking deportation flights to Rwanda vanishingly rare. Worth noting that Robert Jenrick quit as immigration minister on Wednesday. He warned the plans were a triumph of hope over experience. I, I just, I'm running out of words, Kirsty, for the various messes that we've discussed on this podcast in the last year that we've existed, just over a year that we've existed. Uh, but here we are with immigration, Robert Jenrick resigning, Rishi Sunak pulling together emergency legislation, but then having to follow it with a press conference today that was more about saying, um, this is everything is fine than anything else, even though it's, Things are burning and down around him. It seems. What what is the split here? What's going on? Um. Well, uh, the the analogy has been made quite a lot today, and I think it is probably a fair one that he is caught between the Skiller and Charybdis of the Conservative Party. That this Rwanda bill, um, it doesn't go too far 
for the the hard right of the party and goes too far for the centrist of the party. And he's squeezed trying to navigate a effectively a compromise bill through the party. But we learned through through Brexit, the Prime Minister's attempt to Prime Minister Theresa May's attempt to get her Brexit deal through, that you know and the Prime Minister said again and again and again in the House, compromise is not a dirty word. But it mm. seems to have become a dirty word for the Conservative Party. You know, what used to take pride in being a broad church, where presumably consensus and compromise was part and parcel of being a broad church, has completely forgotten this piece of, of, of what holds a broad church up uh, and now has just become, you know, uh, a field of ferrets. Uh, all scrapping with each other all of the time about everything. Um, and uh, I think it's a little bit early to declare it to be ungovernable, but who would want to govern this mess? Yeah. Uh, I've, you know, I've increasingly it's a terrible thing to say about a, a leader, a prime minister, that you feel sorry for them. Mm. It's not a great look for a prime minister, but, you know, again, it's kind of one step forward, two steps back. And, you know, a couple of observations. I mean, look, you know, it is a triumph of, of, of hope over experience, but, you know, what are you supposed to do? You have promised that you will uh, strain every sinew and try everything to stop the small boats. So when you've been uh, blocked in that by the Supreme Court, you've got to try and find a way forward. And, uh, I mean, you know, I know this is a bit of a kind of, jump the shark piece of legislation in some ways. But, you know, what other way forward is there? If the courts have said no, then to basically say, no, we're parliament. We actually set the rules of this country and we govern it and we've decided that what you, the courts, say about Rwanda doesn't matter mm-hmm. and what we say about Rwanda does. And they've had uh, uh, Edward Garnier, a backbencher, Edward Garnier um, uh, on today, on the radio today, explaining very well, I thought that you know, Parliament. If Parliament wants to piece, pass a piece of legislation saying dogs are cats, <laughs> then it has the right to do that. And this is effectively what it's saying. You know, mm. the Supreme Court blocked the Rwanda policy by saying, in large part, because they said that Rwanda wasn't safe. So they have signed a new treaty, and Parliament has the chance to vote and say, no, we Parliament think Rwanda is safe. And if you know, and you courts have no right then to be able to determine it, except in the most rare cases where for an individual, for a very individual specific reason, Rwanda would not be safe. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think it is, I assume it is because there are, is that tiny area in there where you could still uh, make, a, make a case uh, under the ECHR that the right of the party still think it doesn't go far enough. And they think if you are taking this much of a step, let's pull out. And much as the same as probably no one ever looked at Theresa May and ever thought she was going to back a no-deal Brexit, I think they all look at Rishi Sunak and think, you know, there's no way he's ever going to back um, uh, pulling out of the ECHR. There is a uh, an extra issue here, though. So obviously there is a disagreement over policy. There is a disinclination by the Conservative Party to find any kind of compromise or consensus going forward, to accept that not everything will be to your liking. Uh, But also, when you're at the back end of 13 years of a government, 
There's a fair amount of kind of grudges and school settling going on too. I think that's another problem. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it would be uncharitable of me to suggest this, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> uh, Rob Jenerick, uh, along with Oliver Dowden and Rishi Sunak, used to be like the three amigos. Yeah. Uh, they were very close. Uh, they signed a letter together. It seems like a lifetime ago now saying that Boris Johnson would make a great prime minister. Uh, And they were, you know, they were about as sort of close as you get in politics. So, and bear in mind that Robert Jenrick also uh, has been a Secretary of State at MHCLG, as was, uh, and is quite an ambitious man. So I wonder whether a little bit of this has been motivated by the fact that when Suella Braverman stepped down, he was immigration minister at the Home Office, his own personal expectation would have been that his good mate, Rishi Sudak, would have made him Home Secretary. Uh, and imagine how personally peeved he would have been to find mm. out that that job went to James Cleverley, who uh, you know, doesn't, isn't held in the highest regard by big chunks of the party. Uh, and I wonder, uncharitably, whether some of this has been motivated by Rob Jenrick's uh, frustration at a lack of loyalty or perceived loyalty by the Prime Minister and that he was expecting to get the home sex job mm. uh, and is mightily cheesed off that he wasn't given it by his mate, Rishi Sunak. So I wonder whether it's some of it's that. And then, of course, his resignation then... You know, up pops Suella Braverman again, who I should imagine has got quite cheesed off by the fact that her uh, resignation has not... Sorry, sacking. Firing, um, firing, yeah. Firing, firing, firing. Um, you know, hasn't created quite the seismic shift that she <laughs> had expected and and that we've all kind of quick, quite quickly forgotten uh, that she was the home secretary. So up she pops as well to uh, to stoke the fire. And then I don't know whether they thought this through, but the news conference, uh, whatever it was designed to do, in actuality, it ended up allowing the Conservatives to shape and frame what next Tuesday's vote on the Rwanda bill will be about. And sure as eggs is eggs, they've all not unreasonably reached the conclusion that if you've got a Prime Minister saying, you know, back this bill, it's really important, and a group of MPs from their party thinking we might not back this because on one side it goes too far and the other side doesn't go far enough, uh, that it is a bill of such importance that you've staked so much political capital on that in terms, in effect, if rebels vote down this bill, make sure this bill doesn't pass, that is in effect or in terms a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister. Uh, And... In having that, you know, and it's not to say we didn't have the conference, we wouldn't have got there anyway, but he has walked himself into a political crisis which has ended up uh, uh, being an existential crisis for his premiership. Now, uh, what do you need to trigger a vote of no confidence? You need a uh, 15% of the party to put a vote in, uh, to put a letter of no confidence in to the chair of the backbench committee, Sir Graham Brady. That's uh, under this parliamentary party that's 53 letters. Now, so far, I think the only one that we know in public who stated that they've put in a letter is uh, Andrea Jenkins. 
Um, and she claims that there have been six others, but nobody really knows nobody how many knows they that. are. Mm. And the reality is, if there was a vote of no confidence, Rishi Sunak would win it, but he would be fatally undermined, and the only question would be how much longer he would last. Theresa May very famously won a vote of no confidence, and six months later she was out. Yeah. Um, you don't really survive long-term from that. No, it doesn't, and, no, it do- it doesn't quite work, does it? Yeah, and here we are again. <laughs> yeah. Yet again, incredibly, yet again, a year out probably from an election, uh, having a discussion about whether the Conservatives are seriously, you know, crazy enough to overthrow or in effect <laughs> overthrow another leader. Another leader. I think one of the interesting things, I, I caught a sentence in an article this week which said when Rishi Sunak became leader and prime minister, the Conservative leader and prime minister, However difficult it may have been at the time, he could have legitimately said, this Rwanda thing is a Boris Johnson idea. I'm throwing it in the bin. It's not going to work. I'm going to do something else. And I think it's just an interesting consideration as to why you, why he wouldn't do that. So is it because he believes so truly, wholly in it and believes it can get over the finish line? Is it because he didn't have any alternative idea that would pacify anyone? Is it that no other idea exists? I think it's just so fascinating that the Rwanda deportation plan is so central and he probably could have junked it without and, and taken a hit at the time, but he wouldn't have ended up in this mess, potentially. Uh, yeah, that feels a little bit like with the benefit of hindsight. Totally. No um, uh, the Prime Minister has always argued that Rwanda is one of the weapons in you know the armoury, but it is yeah. not the sole one. Uh I think there is a slight comms question about why it's been allowed to become such a focal point. Um, And I thought much the same thing today when I was listening to him say, you know, uh, we have brought down, you know, illegal migrant crossings over the channel by a third uh, this year. And, uh, you know, across the Mediterranean, they're up 80%. And I thought, and yet here we are with that piece of, you know, quote unquote, good news being completely overshadowed by a row about the the government's, you know, impotent attempts to be able to take control of its borders again. Um, Now, to be fair to the government, they are not by any means the only uh, country exploring a third country option Mm -hmm. uh, of this magnitude. Uh, they are not the only country facing legal challenges to trying to explore this option. Uh, but I come back to the point I, I, I think I've made several times before. For me, uh, you know, the sensible and right thing to do, and one of the reasons, by the way, that you know migrant crossings have gone down by a third over the channel is because they secured a returns agreement with Albania. Now, one of the things that happened under Boris Johnson's Brexit deal was that we we left the Dublin Agreement. Now, the Dublin Agreement allowed people that pitched up on our shores uh, who'd crossed the channel to be sent back, in effect, to France. But, you know, we, we left that deal when we left uh, the European Union. And so we have no capacity to uh, send people back to you know, to the last place they were before they they got to us, in other words, Mm -hmm. France. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, back in March, you might recall, you know, Rishi Sunak went to 
uh, have a sort of bilateral meeting with Macron off the back of the Windsor framework being uh, secured to talk about, you know, whether it was possible to have a, you know, an individual bilateral returns agreement with France, which Macron, to the surprise of no one, said, no, <laughs> you have to secure an agreement with the European Union for that is, you know, that is how it works. And that is, you know, we are part of, of, of that and you would need to secure it with the EU. Now, I can't understand why he didn't, why he didn't say, look, we've got this agreement with returns agreement with Albania. It's seen a 90% drop, by the way, in, mm. in Albanian uh, migrants crossing on the channel, 90%. Uh, and in the last year, we sent back the 4,600 people that did pitch up on, on small boats from Albania. So to me, you know, one of the most straightforward ways of kicking this can down the road is to pursue uh, a returns agreement uh, with the European Union. Uh, and, you know, people say well, that would never happen. Well, you know, it has to happen at some point because otherwise – uh, you know, you're stuck with everybody that pitches up over the channel. So uh, I don't know why they didn't pursue that route. And I can only assume, like a lot of things, it's about party management, you know. And, you know, you've got this insurgent right-wing rump of the party, which has become, you know, the tail that wags the dog. And I think the reason that he didn't drop it was because that would have caused an unholy stink with the with the hard right of the party, mm-hmm. and at the time that he took over, he couldn't afford to rock that boat. Uh, you know, and this is you know this is the dilemma that he's always had. You know, he's got people think that party management is, uh, well, probably used to think that party management was was a you know not very important element of the prime minister's job but you know if you don't get your party management right the, this party in particular will will get rid of the leaders you know faster than you know uh, Chelsea football club will get rid of a manager right it just <laughs> you know you have to be able to nail it and so mm-hmm. chances are that's probably why he didn't get rid of it because he knew it wouldn't wash with his own back benches the other part of this then we've just got a couple of minutes left is um, on all of this is a tweet from at Conservatives tonight, or a post, I should say, on X, from at Conservatives, um, where they have taken a screen grab of the BBC News presenter who was caught on camera giving the middle finger. Um, She had to put out an apology saying, look, I was messing around with colleagues, production staff and whatnot. Wasn't expecting the camera to cut back to me at that point. It was just a mistake. You know, we were, it was an in-joke. We were having fun. Sorry about that. The At Conservatives account has taken a screen grab of that and posted it with the caption, Labour, when you ask for their plans to tackle illegal migration. Um, now, in the replies to this, the top reply that I can see is Alicia Cairns, MP, Conservative MP for Rutland and Melton, also chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, saying, amazed this has not, despite requests, been taken down. It's beneath us. Notably, she's not the only Conservative MP who is very publicly saying, why is this here? Take this down. Tobias Elwood has also tweeted. I mean, I'm just naming a couple. On the other hand, Jonathan Gullis, MP, um, has tweeted it saying, I approve this message. Uh, It's a a little bit... So I'm going to draw from other people here who have taken the screen grabs and said, of the MP's responses and said, 
this demonstrates the split in the Conservative Party in, in just a, in a flash. You know, on the one hand, you've got people like Jonathan Gullis, MP for Stoke-on-Trent uh, North. I approve this message. And on the other, you've got some saying, take it down. It's been viewed six million times. In the in the 45 minutes to an hour that we've been chatting, Kirsty, that's gone up by a million people or a million views at least. What do you make of it? Yeah, it, well, I make of it the huge irony that, you know, in effect, the, the Conservatives are running their own culture war, uh, you know, internecine culture war, right? So you've got this rump of the party. Now, Gullis is part of what they call the new Conservatives, which... Uh, are probably the kind of, you know, the, the new look uh, European research group. Uh, they're the very kind of hard right rump of the party. They've even gone back to resurrecting the old ERG trick of having a star chamber of lawyers look at the Rwanda bill be- before they decide whether they're going to deign to support it or not. So you've got that kind of, and they are very much the kind of, you know, Yahoo, Lee Anderson, plain speaking, red wall, you know, uh, arm of the party. And then the other arm of the party, which is more uh, centrist, more mature, a little bit more uh, attuned to the the importance of how you behave in office and what isn't, isn't dignified. Mm. Uh, and that's it. That's it in a nutshell. It's a culture war within the party. And it, and it not only demonstrates the split it also demonstrates the problem they've got at the election because you cannot you know appeal to the red wall and try and shore up your shire votes uh, at the same time yeah uh, and the party can't really decide right now what it wants to be it can't decide whether it wants to be this kind of you know uh gun toting you know, plain speaking, red wall party, or a slightly more uh, mature, refined, uh, core vote, traditional centrist conservative party. And it, if it can't sort out that schism, uh, and it and it self evidently can't, or doesn't seem to want to anymore, I don't, I don't know. Uh, then who's going to vote for it? Because you know, it's a completely divided party. You've got a, a leader that can't lead his own party, regardless of what you know you think about Labour or Keir Starmer as a voter. You know, who's going <laughs> to? Where is your you know where is your confidence in this this party yeah. to continue to govern? I mean, record aside, they can't govern themselves, let no. uh, alone a country. Um, and so, yeah, increasingly, I. Uh, I look at Rishi Sunak and I feel really sorry for him because, you know, I've been here. You know, this is kind of anybody that's worked for Theresa May through the Brexit years, this is kind of triggering stuff. You know, mm. it's people that will not will not reach consensus or compromise and are putting their own views and their own ideology above what they were elected to do, which is serve the people uh, and do what they think is right for the country. And it's just become an internecine warfare about the heart and soul and the future direction of the Conservative Party. And most voters are perfectly entitled to say, do you know what? We're bored of this. Mm. We're bored of your psychodrama. You go and sort it out in opposition and we're voting Labour. 
Just as we're talking, Pippa Carrera, who is the political editor of The Guardian, tweets, Tory MP Rachel McLean, one of several deputy chairs of the party, tells a TV channel, the Rwanda vote will be a confidence issue. Quote, of course it's about confidence in the government and what it delivers. So the chaos continues. Uh, Whatever unfolds in the coming days, we'll analyse it for you, along with some guests as well over the next, well, next week is when we'll be back with the podcast with Whitehall Sources to see where we're at. Who knows? Maybe a general election's been called by then, Kirsty. Your prediction's as good as mine on that one, I think. (laughs) Good grief. Um, Thank you, Kirsty. Great to speak to you. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening. Please follow, please subscribe. We're here every single week breaking down politics with those who have lived it, breathed it, who have been inside it. And we'll talk to you again to do just that next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.